It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the Hive Jive. Now that we are actually on here and we're recording, hello, everybody. <laughs> hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hive Jive. Yeah, welcome to another beekeeper chat. And we've got a couple of little uh, teasers to bring up. And we've got a discussion today on potential unintended consequences okay. of oxalic acid treatment that we will discuss here in a little bit. Uh, but first and foremost, so at the date of this recording, which um, I have to actually look because I'm not sure what today is. January 24th of 2023. Earlier today, Houston, Texas was hit by a tornado in the metropolitan area. So to any of our listeners and, and patrons out there who happen to be in the Houston area and Metroplex, we hope you're okay. Your family, your friends, everybody's okay. We hope that your hives are okay. Um, I don't know the extent of any damage. It could have just tore up one building. It, I, I'm not really sure. Um, but I did see a, a little newsflash update pop up across my phone mm. earlier today about that. So that would be that. And while Houston's being hit by those types of storms, I'm being buried in snow. <laughs> oh, man, that's no fun then, is yeah. it? Yeah, so we are currently uh, experiencing our very first legitimate snowstorm of the year. We've had some little dustings and things, but today in less than a 12-hour period, we are going to get between 8 to 12 inches of snow and it is heavy, wet snow that likes to break things like trees and power lines and all that stuff. So it'll be very interesting tomorrow morning. Everything should look like a winter wonderland. Um, <laughs> hope hope everything's all secured. <laughs> right. I hope you plan for the snow, basically. We did. We did a little bit. So my, my biggest concerns at the moment uh, is loss of power. So we were told after we bought the house and moved up here that the neighbors up the hill said that the last time there was a really epic snowstorm and it was like this where they got like a foot of snow or more all at once they lost power for like 10 days oh my gosh and i was long. like i was like no that is not cool so hopefully that doesn't happen because unlike our house in texas which had a freaking fireplace that you never need to use mm -hmm. this house up here in the mountains in the forest has no fireplace <laughs> Lots of trees I can burn, but nothing to burn them in. Um, so if we were to lose power, worst case scenario, I do at the moment, I, I just have a small generator. And that small generator would be dedicated to the aquarium <laughs> and the incubator that is currently working on hatching its first batch of chicks for oh, the year. That's right. You're at the so, sensitive time. Yes. So if the power goes off, I am SOL and I will have to fire up that generator. Now, the bad thing is I will be using every last bit of power to power all of those things, which means the people and the dogs, we don't can get any. To death. <laughs> <laughs> we, we get no help. We can go upstairs and we can crank up the oven and, and turn on the gas stove or something. And, and that'll heat up the upper area in the living room area. So that's about it. That's all we can hope for. And I can sustain that uh, if I got extremely desperate, I can do that for about eight hours. After that, I'm going to start siphoning gas out of the vehicles <laughs> <laughs> to power the generators. So 
fingers crossed that it does not come to that because uh, I I don't want that to occur. Um, but yeah, that would really suck to lose like a whole clutch of uh, eggs that are only oh, like yeah. a week away from hatching. So they're they're well on the way of development. Um, and then the aquarium. Oh man, let's not let's not even go that's there. Expensive that's expensive. That's thousands right of dollars worth of crap inside water, that. Right? Yes, yes. There's no thing except for like some snails and some crabs. There's nothing you can buy to put in that aquarium that is not double digits above fifty dollars, and most of them are triple digits. <laughs> that would yeah. yeah. So we're we're hoping that's not the case. Um, so yeah, so that's where well, I'm at. <laughs> keep, keep, keeping your fingers crossed and and hoping that you know you don't have too much PTSD from this new Megadon out here a couple of years ago. Yeah, well, see, I lucked out down there though. I was on the same grid as a hospital, a police station, and a fire department, oh, so I never lost power. And right. the when the water started trickling into nothing. We were only we only had like a day or two of just an extremely slow trickle, but we were already prepped for it. So we had already boiled water and set it aside and had all that stuff. Good, good. So we lucked out down there. Now up here, do not have that luxury. <laughs> we're we're the furthest we could get from the fire station and the police station and they're and the hospital. They're all on the opposite side of town. Oh, so you're yeah, SOL again. <laughs> yep, SOL. Um, so we are hoping that that's not the case. I, I, I love to see the snow. It's going to be awesome. We can take the, the giant fluffy dog out and she can play in it and it'll be a blast, but, uh, I, we just don't want to lose power. That's the only thing. I don't, yeah, I don't, don't break no well, electrical lines. Let us know how it goes or not. Cause I won't have power. <laughs> <laughs> <That's true. laughs> hey, if we don't have an episode next week, know that it's because there's it's still no power. John's, John's missing. <laughs> <laughs> he is missing in the snowstorm. Um, yeah, so that that's my update from up here. I uh, I'm assuming I have not went down there to investigate. I should have. The temperatures of the past uh, couple days, kind of leading up to this, have been a little bit warmer. Um, but I'm assuming that the the sole surviving Langstroth is still alive. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's an assumption. <laughs> I don't know for a fact. You will know soon enough. But I will. Yeah. I will know after the foot of snow has uh, melted away whether or not that was a successful. <laughs> winter survival it, or not it stays alive it will be you know twice i mean it will be much better success than you had last year right so. <laughs> any, any success is better than the success from last year yeah one hive is a hundred percent improvement <laughs> exactly <laughs> Oh, that's that's really sad when you can you can lose 50% of your colonies and still be 100% ahead of where you were the year before. Right. Exactly. <laughs> How's that for some fun math? <laughs> that's why people we tell you all the time have more colonies because you're going to lose some. Yeah, yeah. Freaking bears. <laughs> like, I know. That's what started it all. I mean, it was it was kind of cool to see, but it just well, the aftermath of it wasn't cool. No. Oh I mean man. If I find him again, I'll box him up and ship him to you. And then you can experience <laughs> bears. <laughs> yeah, I don't want the bears. Thank you very much for that, Sherry. <laughs> oh, come on. You're already you're already working on a new place where you're going to have bees and chickens and things like that. So follow along. Oh, <laughs> I got yeah. bees. I got chickens. I got a bear. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I'll pass because the, the bear fences and all that stuff, it's not my cup of tea. And I don't know how I would retrofit any of the yards. So. Yeah, that was my thing for here. Luckily, we're just having a couple of hives here at the house. 
I, I did a tripwire type system, which was an extremely loud sound that goes for like an hour or something until the battery dies if you don't go down there and stop it. So it right. will scare them and chase them away. And it is, really it is good. Yeah. stupid loud. So that was my alternative to an electric fence, like scare the crap out of it. And maybe it will associate that area with getting the crap scared out of it and it just won't come back. So fingers crossed. But yeah. once there starts being more hives and, and other locations where I can't hear the alarm go off, there will have to be electric fences because that'll be right. the only way to protect them when nobody's out there to monitor them. So, And that's your first time doing the electric fences in beekeeping, right? Yeah, it's, it's my first time having to do them. It's not my first time seeing them and, and going through the whole concept because that I learned about that up in Canada. <laughs> so, okay. yeah, that, that was also where I learned the trick about the sardine cans attached to the fence. It, uh, it's a story that I told back with Ken, like way back in, in the first season, I think of the podcast or second season. But if you open up a sardine can and you leave some of the sardines and the oil and everything in it, and you hook it on the electric fence, it actually uh. attracts the bear and the bear comes up and bites the sardine can, which then shocks the bear directly inside of its mouth, which oh, sounds bad, but it's the same concept that the bees try to do. If you're a massive creature with thick fur and right. thick skin, your nose, your eyes, your mouth, your ears are the only places that can actually get any type of effect. So when he bites it and it stings him in the mouth or her in the mouth and the tongue, it scares the crap out of him. It hurts and they will leave it alone. And, and the gentleman up there that taught me that said that after it's happened once or twice, you can take those and you can just hang the empty cans on the fences and it doesn't matter. They see the can moving and shining and they turn and go the other direction. Yeah, It trains them That's not to even come near the fence. So That's Good. I like that trick. Yeah. So that, that would be what the alternative would be down here if it comes to that. But I got to have more than a couple of hives. And at the moment, that's a challenge in and of itself. So I don't think I have to worry about an electric fence for a while. <laughs> no, I think you're fine with just <laughs> one. It should be easy to kind of like protect. Basically. We'll see. I mean, it would be great if I could end next year with, I don't know, five or 10. But that is like that's an exponential increase compared to the, the success exactly. I've been having so far. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we shall see. Uh, okay. So sneak peeks for upcoming things at the beginning of February on the main podcast platform, there's going to be another natural beekeeping corner with Miss Natalie. And yes, sir. Uh, you've got another brilliant idea. You're going to talk about how to convert Langstroth into top bar in a conversion type hive. That yes. takes less than 10 <laughs> minutes to put together. You basically, it's not much it's not complicated at all and um i'll share with you the step-by-step -step, but it's basically anybody can do it and the beauty of it will be that you can use established colonies in your established equipment to try out tabar hives and and potentially you know have both uh the best of both worlds or just switch over completely without having to buy bees there you go. So that'll be the upcoming natural beekeeping natural beekeeping corner, beekeeper corner, beekeeping corner <laughs> on the the main segment of the podcast out there for that first Monday in February. Now, for people here at the Bee Academy level on Patreon, there will be a supplemental like education tutorial video that will come out shortly around that same period that will actually walk you through the physical steps and show you how to build it and how to put it together so you can actually get a little training and education video in there. So that is something to look forward to coming along as well. 
And um, I might have a special guest. Ooh, imagine that. <laughs> mm-hmm, the mystery is thick. <laughs> special guests, AKA also slave labor. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm going to build something. I need some special guests. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that was like Ken, whenever uh, somebody, I think it was the first time we talked about Hives for Heroes. And he was like, oh, I'll mentor some people, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you just want people to come do all your freaking B work for you. And he was like, well, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's not how I'm doing it. I, 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 do I, know, I know, I know. <laughs> and I'm like, no, she, I'm actually, um, she can't come to a regular apprenticeship, which I wanted, you know, to offer that to her. Uh, so I'm I'm doing basically private classes for, for her. And it's kind of nice because... We, it's very intensive and it's great. It's a for good cause. So I really highly recommend anybody try it out. And and it's kind of linked to what that preview, that thing we're going to do for the natural beekeeping corner is, right? Because in some instances, uh, having limited physical abilities is a, is a hindrance, is a obstacle to keeping bees. And so if you want to help people uh, keep bees that have some physical limitations and cannot lift boxes for any reasons or don't have like you know the dexterity to lift a, a frame out of a hive then that's one way to do it so and then that's actually one of the probably best case scenarios for a top bar hive or you could also say for a horizontal hive period not necessarily just a top bar hive but they can be adjusted to where they're at waist high, regardless if you were standing up or if you were sitting down. If you're in a wheelchair, you can actually have the hive designed to where you can still come right up to it, be able to open it management and do all the things inside there and not be hindered by the size, the weight, the shape, things like that. So mm-hmm. it's really actually, that's one of the, the beauties of having those styles of hives. So that's definitely something to look forward to. So watch for that. Uh, well, listen for that on the main podcast mm-hmm. out there at the beginning of February. And then also you uh, be Academy members here. You can actually catch that video whenever it comes out here on Patreon. So there's that. Uh, okay. So Oxalic acid on to the main subject for today because you know, right. we're just ranting and raving out here. So yeah, it's all good. The main subject today is brought to you by Natalie. <laughs> uh, because I sent you the link <laughs> to this study. <laughs> so oxalic acid is a form of treatment for anybody out there who may be scratching their head. It is often abbreviated as OA and it is a vaporization most of the time. Um, it's a vaporization that can go inside and actually kills the mites that are considered phoretic mites, the ones that are on the backs of the bees walking around inside the colony. Now, I want to say that during one of the beekeeper chats, you and I have had a conversation before about the overusage of oxalic acid and how even if you treat it every single day, if there's any brood present whatsoever... Right you're never going to get rid of all the mites because Mm -hmm. anything underneath the cappings is not going to be affected. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they come out of that capping, they may get onto a bee, but they may also just go over and go right back down into a cell. So if that's the case, you're never catching those mites. So treating them every single day at the same time, like it's going to drop any of the mites that are on the bees, but it's not going to do anything to the ones inside the cells. So the study specifically is looking at how does excessive treatment of oxalic acid potentially affect larva? Right. 
I can and stop. And so, so that the <laughs> other thing I was going to say is that it's what it's not going to do is catch those uh, mites under the cappings, but what it's going to do is stress your colony because it's caustic. And it has unintended consequences. Remember that theme that we follow quite a bit of. And um, we're looking, a lot of people say there's a resistance being developed for, I mean, the, the bees, the mites, sorry, are developing resistance to some of the more um, chemical treatments that are basically leaching into the wax. They're, they're, uh, the wax is lipoph uh, lipophilic and it binds with some of those oil-based uh, treatments, the mites have learned to develop resistance and they got stronger in face of it. And the argument has always been for those organic acids, those, those um, acid treatments that the mites don't develop resistance. Well, it, it might or might not be true, but it still has some toxic potential against the, the colony and not a just, not just at the adult bee level. It is very well known that it is detrimental to the adult bees and it can be very caustic and, and cause lethal, you know, even potentially lethal effects on them. But so far there was not much research done on the larval impact of those oxalic acid treatments. And that study um, is basically an attempt to do that. And it's looking at very low concentrations of oxalic acids um, in the in the solution in which the larvae are bathing, basically, uh, and food, potentially yeah. feeding from, right? But at the concentration that's probably about, I think, um, uh, three hundredths of um, the regular concentration for uh, oxalic acid treatments. Meaning, oxalic acid treatments are usually recommended at three to five percent concentration levels and the, the concentration that the larval, larvae are exposed to is 0.01% all the way to 1%. So there's several test groups and they're looking at very low concentrations of oxalic acid and their impact on the various instars from the larvae um, from very young to a couple of more, couple of three more ages. Uh, fourth, first instar, second instar, third instar, fourth instar, I think I'm looking at. Yeah, first through fourth. Mm -hmm. So the study is basically looking at those results and the um, the lethal impact on the larvae. Yeah, so it's showing some some problems. So just to, to kind of clarify a couple of little points, when when you think about the aspect of, well, they're they're looking at it in the food they're feeding it to the bees well yeah. how would that be something that could correlate to a real Correct. world scenario well the if you ever look inside the bottom of the cell and you look at the larva it it should be in a healthy hive it should be swimming in liquid if the hive does not have enough food coming in the bottom of those cells will be kind of dry and that's actually a bad thing because usually if there's excess food and they've got plenty of an abundance in there, there's going to be lots of liquid in there. And that is the brood, the bee food, the brood food that the bees, there we go, get that all wrapped up in there, right? The brood food at, that the bees are actually generating and then putting into the cell, the larva just kind of swims in circles eating that substance mm -hmm. and that food. If something like that is exposed and then you are vaporizing something throughout the inside of this colony, the particulates of that can fall down and settle into there. And if they do, just like the honey being hydroscopic and pulling from the atmosphere, 
the brood food and everything can do the same thing. Even if it doesn't actually suck it in and absorb it, the particulates are falling on the surface of it. And then the larva is actually swimming through that and eating it. So they could really be consuming it in the real world scenario, which is why in the study they've gone through and they're, they're actually just mixing it directly into the food because that's where that exposure would come from. So that's number one. Number two, anybody who wants to start off and be like, well, you know, it doesn't really seem to harm the bees and therefore it's really not that big of a deal. Um, anybody who is actually following the directions to a T for oxalic mm-hmm. acid, this should tell you a lot right here. Wear protective gloves, wear long sleeves, do not let it come into contact with your skin, wear eye goggles, wear a face mask. If you have a face mask that is like serious end filtration, wear that. These are the types of things that you're supposed to do if you're doing oxalic acid vaporization. So if it is that potentially harmful to you and -hmm. you have to take all these precautions, a bee breathes oxygen just like you do. And Mm -hmm. just because you don't see them drop dead instantaneously doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that some of that vaporization can't go into their lungs and actually form crystals just like it can in yours and have long-term unintended consequences. So that's always one of those things where one of the things, okay, so this is a kind of a weird analogy, but I think it kind of makes the same point. When you look at things that you put on your skin, in all honesty, if it says do not ingest you should not put it on your skin right? because your skin is the largest organ in your body and anything you put on your skin is absorbed into your bloodstream. So if you can't eat it, you shouldn't put it on you. (laughs) Exactly. So it's the same, same concept. If you have to get that much protection on you before you use this on your bees, is it really something that you should be doing for your bees? Now, that being said, we can move on with what the study itself actually found. <laughs> right. And, and and we can keep talking about some of the other problems with the organic acids and the very word of organic, quote unquote, and what that means. I think we've talked about it a little bit before. Yeah. It just means it comes from nature. It's naturally found and it's not man-made. It does not mean that it cannot harm you because bleach is organic and bleach dissolves organic yes. material. <laughs> and, and it's not just that it's man-made. It, it's not man-made. Synthetic, it, synthetic quote unquote, synthetic is what I should It's actually that it's got carbon in it. That's what the chemistry term means as opposed to not having any carbon in it. So to your point, bleach, uh, ricin is organic. Um, the um, active ingredient of Agent Orange is organic naphthalene is organic ddt is organic so just keep that in mind it doesn't mean that it's safe right it's just a chemistry term that in this case means it contains carbon so so it's still caustic it's still toxic at the concentrations that are being used and in the case of this study to your point which is very pertinent you have uh, a certain level of absorption in the liquid food of the larvae and potentially in their spiracles. The larvae have spiracles as well. Um, But those concentrations that they're using for the study are very, very low. 0.01%, for example, instead of three to 5%. Um, So the the difference is in the magnitude of hundreds power, right? And um, it still has a negative impact on them. And, and it's not just that they can be exposed to the vapors, it's that the colony matrix, everything that surrounds them um, can be basically a vector to tracking 
that into the food of the bees. So not from the not just from the air exposure, but also from the adult bees walking around and and dropping some of those crystals because that's what it is onto the cells and to the the comb and potentially all the way into the food when you know mechanical exchanges of trophallaxis or or dropping off some of that worker jelly into the cells. Yeah, and then the the other part of it when we talked about the different instars, the first instar through the fourth instar, the older the larva gets, the less of an impact, which doesn't mean there's no impact, but right. the less of an impact this oxalic acid treatment had on the older larva, but it had the younger the larva was, it had a much more detrimental effect on them and all of it ended up leading to higher mortality rates. So mm-hmm. This is just simply looking at we we did this, we fed the bees this, and any bee larva that was within the first instar had this exponential increase in mortality rate. Anybody that was in the second instar, you know, the mortality rate increased still, but less than that first one. It kind of went up a scale like that. But the other thing that it's not necessarily showing you or telling you is what of those that survive that go through the metamorphosis and become an adult bee is there any detrimental effect of that adult bee? Right. Just like how we found some of the other synthetic chemicals can actually impair their ability to be able to navigate and find their way home and things like that. So is there is there some sort of perhaps long-term respiratory disease or problem exactly. that the adult bee has from this type of, of an effect? So it's it's really <laughs> there's there's you can't win for losing it's like now, no good deed goes unpunished and so to your point which is excellent again what's the trade-off right you're, you're trying to knock back the effect of the mites on the bees bee colony by decreasing the population of mites which again you're putting the pressure on them to get stronger somehow but even not looking at that you potentially have some long-term consequences uh into adulthood that might or might not be just as bad or potentially worse um, from what the, the mites are doing, especially when we're talking about viruses. If, you ha- if they have a really good immune system, they have a strong vitality and everything else is working fine, uh, that shouldn't become an issue. They shouldn't express themselves as much. They could be there la- la- um, you know, chronically, but not really express themselves acutely. And in the case of oxalic acid, that might be long-term physical disabilities basically that you're impacting on your on your honeybees so and and the fact that um basically there's an accumulation of issues here and over time maybe that accumulation will make it even more concentrated than the 0.01 percent right because that residual crystal those residual crystals every time you uh treat your hives that might increase um in the in the hive and that's something that i'd be curious about as well doing a study on that and what really is the long-term effect um when people do studies and research they look at usually laboratory conditions and um, very short periods of times and they don't look in down the road in two three years um, to see what's happening with your comb with your colony itself and its vitality so that's something to keep in mind as well well, that's that's an excellent point. The oh man, I completely just lost that train of thought. Dang it! Um, so the the aspect of going through and you know you're talking about the levels of the treatment. This is this is it came back quickly. Thankfully, yes. thankfully. Good. So um, 
the levels of the treatment and you know how it could potentially build up on itself. Well, again, if you're following the directions, you're only supposed to be using this when no brood is present. But if you live in somewhere like Texas, how often is it that there's never any brood whatsoever in the colony? Because sometimes, even if it's only the size of a baseball, there seems to always be some tiny little patch of brood, even in the middle of winter or the the deep dearth of the summer, you know, there's always some little patch of activity going on there. So being able to live in a climate where you potentially could find a colony where there literally was zero brood, that in and of itself would be the first challenge. The Mm -hmm. second challenge is going to be, are you really following the directions or are you also doing the whole concept of more is more? If a little bit of it does good, then just do it. Yeah. You know, so I'm going to go through and I'm going to, yeah, instead of like less is more, you're like more is way too much kind of thing. So you're going in and you're potentially doing exactly like I said at the very beginning where you're treating every single day. Now, why would you do this? The reason that I came up with that was because of some researchers in Georgia who had done it on purpose to find out if it truly had a high enough efficacy rate to be able to drop mites and get a colony completely clear of mites. And what they found was even doing it every single day, they never could eradicate all of the mites. Mm -hmm. But I know plenty of beekeepers. We've had plenty of questions and listener questions come in here where it's the helicopter beekeeping parents, right? Right. They're just so nervous and so paranoid. Their first winter, they go overboard and they do everything instead of just like any of these options could work. I'm going to do them all just in case, you know? So you can get that mentality and you can have that mindset where, yeah, you know what? I I treated them when I'm supposed to treat them. But then I was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do another one just to knock it down. And then pretty soon I've treated them three times this month. And mm-hmm. so now you, you could very well be getting a buildup in there because a brood cycle is 21 days. Mm-hmm. And if you happen to treat them multiple times in a single month, you're hitting that same larva with multiple doses of this treatment. So yes, it very easily could start to build up in there. Now, the other way that it could build up that we didn't necessarily talk about, I mentioned it in a high level passing was the fact that the honey is hydroscopic. If they have open food cells of nectar, that's being dehydrated down into honey or honey that is almost ripe, but not ripe enough to cap. And you do this vaporization. It's not your honey supers. Now see, that's this one thing that I want to make note of here. You're never supposed to do this with honey supers on there. Why? Because it's going to get in your honey and you right. don't, you can't have that in your honey if you're going to extract it and feed it to a human. So therefore, why is it okay for it to get into the honey for the bees? Right? right. And so we think, oh, well, the honey supers are off the colony. It's no big deal. But in reality, they have honey stores down there by the brood to feed the brood. And if it's open, it's getting inside there. And if you do it multiple times, it could build up a concentration of it. And the the more dehydrated that honey is, the more hydroscopic it is, the more it pulls fumes and vapors from the air. So now you've got it in the food that the bee then eats, the nurse bee eats it, mixes it with some of those glandular secretions to create the brood food and then regurgitates it back into the larva cell. Well, now they're being fed something that's already contaminated. And then you come along and you do another treatment and then they get a fresh contamination. So it is very easy for it to build up And you just not even think about it because you don't, we think about things in the context of what harms the beekeeper. Don't do this for your end product. But at the same time, if it has an effect on you, 
it's gonna have an effect on the bees. <laughs> yeah, that's a high likelihood that it's gonna increase acidity in the colony, potentially to if it accumulates to a level that's non-sustainable. Um, the other aspect of things is people will tell you, well, that's why you rotate treatments. And that's fine, except that all of those treatments have potentially similar issues of accumulation and contamination of various things in the in the, in the hive. And um, formic acid, for example, is supposed to work under the capping. What does it mean? Does it mean that it it it's just kind of is easier to track through and get through pores in the cappings of the larvae or uh, maybe it, it sticks more to the wax or something is do, is allowing it to be more um, effic efficient under the cappings. Any of the oil-based chemicals will be, you know, um, getting into the wax. So even if you wrote essential oils are very much so a problem for that as well. Oil-based. So you're yeah, exactly. gonna be absorbed by the wax. <laughs> if you rotate, even if you rotate through all your uh, treatments to avoid the problems with one, you're adding the problems of the other ones. You're just rotating through them, so you're adding more things in smaller quantity, but that can still add up. It right? compounds, can yeah. Still accumulate over time, so that's something to keep in mind. I like your point about um, uh, getting in, getting into your honey, and that being a food source for the bees can potentially damage their microbiome, their gut microbiome acidity changes, for example. The uh, thing that I've heard though, I don't know if you've heard the same thing, is that the um, oxalic acid has recently been approved for use with supers. I'm not sure my memory um, serves me right, but if that's the case, maybe it's because it's uh, been lobbied for. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, I haven't heard that, but yeah. from from my previous knowledge, the formic acid is the only thing that you can use when a honey super is on because formic acid is naturally occurring in the honey in very small quantities, but it is naturally occurring. So that's that was the reasoning behind why you could do that. Okay, because I it's, thought oxalic acid, I've heard, you know, I mean, I, I debate with people a lot about this stuff. And I've been told before that oxalic acid is naturally present in infinitesimal quantities in the honey or in spinach or I forget, rhubarb and all kinds of other things, right? Is that and the oxalic acid or the formic acid? That was, I thought the oxalic acid. Okay, oh, well, we'll, we will double check on that then. <laughs> yeah, check our work. Just let yeah. us know if we're completely off base. But that's kind of what I remembered being told. Um, I don't know. The point is it doesn't exist in the concentrations that we're using for treatments, right? Right, so, right. And so that's the same concept as uh, hydrogen peroxide is right. technically an aspect of honey, but not in the quantity that you would find if you go to the store and you buy it and you're going to pour it on a wound or something like that. Right. It does have a, a peroxide type aspect to it, but it's in a very small amount. It's, it's not, you know, you can't put something on there. It's not going to bubble up and do weird things right. to you. So, and, and as a comparison, you know, that's a silly one a little bit, but I would put vinegar on my salad, but I wouldn't take a shower with battery acid. <laughs> that's true they're both the same right well, technically battery acid same. is basic but yeah that's the it's on the base side of the acids but it's it'll melt your skin off <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it's very concentrated the concentration matters is what i'm saying right yeah and a lot of these things are also when you talk about carbon carbon is the basic building block of everything 
And so it's going to be there. And then these other things are also a little bit more complex building blocks of different things in life. So yeah, you probably can find that in spinach in microscopic trace amounts. But are you are you feeding spinach to your bees? No, you know? So bring it into the hive. Right, right. right. They, they don't do anything from that. And I would also wager to bet that if there is a plant that has it in the leaf structure of the plant, it probably does not present itself in the pollen or in the nectar of the mm -hmm. plant. Right. So, you know, there, there's little things like that too, where you can make those types of analogies. Um, it's the same analogy as, you know, a banana a day is probably good for you, but a thousand bananas a day will give you cancer and kill you. Right. So it's all quantity. That's <laughs> all it is. And exactly. But to your point, circling back to your point earlier, you also need to put a whole lot of protective gear. A lot of uh, precautions have to be taken and you have to make the expense, take the time and the application test, you know, all this stuff. And it's just kind of at some point, isn't it a little bit easier to understand bee biology, pest and pathogen biology, and to do prevention in a way that follows the um, scientific principles of integrated pest management without necessarily going to the highest level, which should be the last resort, in my opinion. Right. A uh, little side note here on how things can get contaminated that like we completely overlooked the extremely obvious one, but oxalic acid can also be used as a drip, as a liquid drip right. that Dribble. is actually dribbled between the frames, between the Solution. comb. Mm -hmm. And let's think your comb is made like this with mm -hmm. holes that are angled upwards and you're pouring liquid downwards, which is going to yep. hit that hole and run where? right into the cell. So right. if you, you know, I mean, everybody shakes a little bit. We're, we're not doctors. We don't have a perfect steady hand. <laughs> so if you're going through and you're trying to dribble this across there, yeah, it's getting on the backs of the bees, but some of it is also splashing off of their backs or running down, or you, you right. accidentally move, you hit the side of the comb, it runs down and it trickles into multiple cells. If those cells have larvae in it, now they've got a massive dose of this stuff. Right. Exactly. You know, so yeah, it can get in there from the vaporization because it's going to get everywhere. Okay, well, I'll do the dribble. Well, all right, so it didn't oh, get everywhere, but the where it did get right. probably was like exponentially greater of an an impact than yeah. if you had done the vaporization. So, yeah, I, I don't know why, like, I completely blipped that one out. But, uh, yeah, like, obvious here, it can be a liquid form that can be put in there with a syringe or a dropper, and that's, you know, that's not going to work either. <laughs> I mean, at some point... Um... We don't really know, and I'm glad that studies are being conducted because we don't really know a lot of the um, long-term or unintended consequences that come along with some of the practices that we use, especially when we apply foreign substances into the hive, things that the bees would not bring in other ways. Yeah. And, and the concentrations that they don't have or don't even exist in nature, or they're just concentrated by us. Well, and there's, there's other aspects of things too, though, that we we still can't even necessarily figure out. So one of the things the bee lab in Texas, Texas A&M led by Juliana Rangel, the, they were trying to do tests on varroa mites. They could not reproduce varroa mites in the lab. So mm -hmm. they have all these hives in there that are basically an internal observation hive setups. And they were actively going out and finding colonies that were infested 
bringing in those bees, bringing in those mites and purposely trying to get an ongoing established population of mites inside these controlled colonies. And they Mm -hmm. couldn't. They were very unsuccessful at breeding mites in the lab. So then they have to send researchers out to the field to find either managed colonies that are in a normal beekeeping hive setup or feral colonies that they can go through and do samplings and try to collect mites so that they can do this research or bring those mites back. So they, to my knowledge, never found out why. What was different about this hive that is in this very controlled environment that made it to where they couldn't reproduce the mites like the mice mites reproduce out in nature. So there's always something going on. And when you're dealing with something that you don't even fully understand how they communicate all the different pheromone signatures, Mm -hmm. how complex the overall social society of the bee colony is. It's very easy to miss these things that to us are either inconsequential or invisible entirely. Right. Don't think about or literally can't see that have some sort of an impact on them. So that's why these unintended consequences seem to come up every conversation we have is because it's that whole what happens down the road play dominoes <laughs> literally we don't know and honestly uh, what's the trade-off is it really worth applying and trying that and and just seeing what happens is it is it improving the conditions in the, the hives that much i mean as far as i'm concerned i can keep bees without any of that stuff and they do fine they do just as well if not better than the, you know, our our beekeepers that we know that are treating their bees. So why am I going to bother with that? Of course, I'm starting with good stock. I'm not starting with junk bees. And I think that makes a huge difference. But um, very often you hear that um, if you're keeping your bees around um, people that are uh, not treating, they're going to send out mite bombs and that's going to be an issue. Well, if you're treating your hives against mites, why is it an issue, first of all? right? Because that should destroy the mites and that should not be a problem for your colonies. But the other way around is also, it's harder to keep treatment free or natural, you know, colonies when you're surrounded by more agrochemicals or people that are treating their bees. And that's, that's something else to keep in mind as well. So I think that in the end, what is the future of beekeeping is selecting for resistance and tolerance and just making sure those bees, through natural selection, develop the mechanisms that they need to fend for themselves and um, just basically, um, you know, be adapted to local cycles of weather and forage, which is also a very strong uh, factor in their success, right? You know, moving bees around is great. It improves your genetic diversity, but if they're not from uh, a weather or climate that's similar to the one that you're raising your bees, if they're going to struggle um, because it's very local specific, it's hyper specific. It's it's all beekeeping is local and it's true on so many levels. Yep, hyper local, hyper specific. It makes a huge difference for certain on every aspect of beekeeping right. that we do. So, it's a it it's not easy, folks. <laughs> no, it's not. Let's start with good bees and good yeah. education. And on the other little aspect about the mite bombs, the thing that also kind of cracks me up is. A mite bomb can only happen if the colony completely crashes and is being right. robbed out right. by other colonies that are then carrying those mites. So number one, 
if you are being a responsible beekeeper and you are checking your bees as often as you should be, you should know that there's a problem and you should be taking steps to correct it long before the right. colony straight up crashes from having an overabundance of mites and then is allowed to spread those mites to other colonies. So it doesn't matter if you are treatment free or if you right. are treating, if your it's colony good. dies because you didn't test for mites like, or, you know, you weren't doing anything, you were going out there once every other month. That has nothing to do with whether or not you ever treated or you don't treat. You still created a mite bomb. That's right. just poor oh. husbandry beekeeping. <laughs> right. And and the problem is that now, if those mites have been exposed to treatment, they're stronger. Yes. Right. So yeah, that's true. That in mind. I, I'm much more uh, um, tolerant of uh, mite bombs, quote unquote. I know I, that's like a scare tactic. That's just a, it you is. know, well, yeah. Uh, but of the ones that come from natural apiaries, then I would be from the ones that come from treated apiaries because given the choice, I'd rather have the mites that are not selected for strength and, and resistance to some Resist, of those. Yeah, to all the chemicals that they've been using right. to try to treat right. them. <laughs> <laughs> super oxalic acid mites. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Super mites. Yeah. I prefer uh, super bees myself. Right, right. We should all, we should all strive for the super bee. Right. Uh, <laughs> but there's no magic bees, let it be told. And treatment-free is not, does not equate... Uh, hands-off beekeeping. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. It's actually the opposite. And um, and and there's no magic bees. It's just all about, you know, the quality of your bees and uh, the knowledge of the beekeeper. Yep. There is, it, I would almost equate it to kind of looking at the aspect of a traditional Langstroth colony versus one of the AZ or Aja type hives. Mm -hmm yeah, you don't necessarily have to lift boxes and you don't have to do all this other stuff and therefore it could be a solution, mm -hmm. but you're limited drastically on space, which means there's a ton more physical, mechanical manipulation yes. to be able to keep the bees in there and keep them from swarming and doing everything else. So it's the same kind of concept between treating and treatment-free. If you're treating, yeah. yeah, you've got extra steps in there that you've got to go do that the, the other beekeeper doesn't. But you know what? That other beekeeper does four or five other things that you never right. do. That you never do. And right. very often, that's the other thing I, I would say. If you're relying on treatments, I'm not going to judge anybody for doing that to, to each their own. But don't think that's the answer to all. And don't use it prophylactically. And don't think that because you've treated, you're out of the woods. Right. And don't make knee-jerk decisions or assumptions mm -hmm. if your colony is having issues don't assume it's the mites do some tests and see because if you if you think that your colony might have a mite problem and you go through and you do a legitimate alcohol or soap wash and get no mites in that and you did it correctly and you took it from the right areas of the comb and the brood and everything and you got no mites then is it really a mite problem that's actually happening inside that colony? Is there some other potential, you know, disease or bacteria or something that might be causing an issue? Are they not getting enough food? Is there not enough forage? Has it been raining too much? You know, like there's so many things that can go into play, but a lot of times we just like to point our finger and say it was right. this. 
because it's easy. It's yeah. like, you know, I know everything. Is it the mites? What was your mite call? No, by the same token, it also depends how much brood you have in your colony and how large your population is. That's if true. your population has dwindled down to not much, like when you have some dead outs in the winter, you have just maybe like a um, um, grapefruit size cluster and they all died because they couldn't keep warm but then you end up doing a test i've seen that going around oh right yeah, now. yeah 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 people are testing their their bees and they're like oh my my counts were sky uh, were, were sky high that's what killed my bees no not necessarily what happened is that you had no brood left in your colony and all the foretic, all the mites were foretic and the proportion of mites to remaining population was much higher Yep. than it is in general times. It doesn't mean that's what kill your colony. It's just a consequence of um, a problem with the size of your population. Yeah, uh, It doesn't mean it's not the mites, but it doesn't mean it's the mites either. Right. And every time you're, you're doing your mite counts and during a brood period, your mite counts are going to be lower. If right. it's a period of dearth and there's no brood, it's a brood break. You're going to have higher mite counts. Because yeah, there's be nowhere for them to hide. That's right. Uh, we discussed that a couple of episodes back here on the Beekeeper Chat where we did go through and talk about the fact that there's a reason that it's a mathematic equation and that you're getting a percentage and that percentage should be below 1%. It's because it's assuming all the rest of them are under the cappings. And therefore, exactly. if the phoretic population is above that, you got a problem. Right. But if there's no cappings and no brood and larva for them to be in there feeding on and hiding under the cappings, then the only place for them to be is on the backs of the bees. Okay. So that would also be a scenario, though, where you could flip that around and you could very easily say, well, they died and I went through and I did a test and I didn't find any mites. Well, guess right. what? It, then it wasn't mites. Right. Um, it's exactly. the, my, my favorite thing on that is uh, I lost my colony due to wax moths. Oh, and, <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to laugh at people. No, but. no, I was going to say, like, I have started fights in clubs over that before where I've really? been up there and somebody has said, well, you know, well, I, I lost my colony to wax moths. And I mean, right. On, I'm like, no, you didn't. And they're like, excuse me. I mean, yes, I did. And I'm like, no, you didn't. You probably squished your queen and then you didn't go back for over 30 days and they failed to raise a queen or there was no eggs because it was the dearth. And then they went laying worker and then they'd started tanking because there's no more females being born to do the work and guard the comb. And therefore other things started moving in. And by the time you came back 45 days later, the only thing left was silk webs and worm poop from the wax moths. But the wax moths did not kill your colony. You did. No. There's so many other reasons. It could also be a uh, virgin queen in the comeback mated. It could right. be, uh, it was poor nutrition in the colony tanked. It could be uh, pesticide and poisoning. It could be a, a number of reasons, but what yeah. happens is that they come up for the cleanup. Yeah. And you, all you're basing your judgment on is the final scene, the final act. Right. You're not taking into consideration how it got there, <laughs> but uh, all you know is it was dead and gone. And the only thing left were wax moths. <laughs> so they, they, they are, and to a certain extent, so are the small high beetles, uh, secondary pests, basically a, 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 a symptom classified. of the underlying problem. And I would argue that mites are the same way. To me, it's a symptom of a uh, poor... Uh, vitality on the colony, poor queen genetics, poor nutrition, poor stress. It could be a, a symptom of a whole bunch of things. But we have colonies that have higher mite counts that thrive because they are strong. They are just, you know, um, tolerant and uh, tolerant of the mite population and resistant to the um, 
I'm sorry, the other way around, resistant to the my populations and also tolerant of it, but also tolerant and resistant to the viruses that they uh, transmit. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh... <laughs> it's I, a what complex I'm... problem in uh, giving out simplified, simplistic answers is serving no one and no. certainly not the bees. No, especially when you're talking out your rear and, and just making stuff up and you have no actual idea whether or not that was really the case. Yeah, yeah. And that that's yeah, that's why I said I've I've started fights over that before. Because I'm like, I don't I don't even, you know, like after a certain while, and yes, I, I could have probably approached it in a in a much More nicer way. way. Right. You know, but it, but it's one of those once you've heard it a thousand times, oh yeah, you're yeah. finally like you just lose all cooth. There's no more filter, and you're just like, no, <laughs> that's not what happened. Um but it's also one of those things too, like, like when I hear those things, I stop it immediately and I do it in front of everybody so that because you've said it in front of everybody, I don't want that to continue to be propagated as a way of, oh, this is what happens. And like you mentioned, the wax moths and the hive beetles, they're actually classified as a nuisance pest, mm -hmm. a nuisance. They're not detrimental. They cannot kill your colony, no. but they are exactly a symptom of a greater cause. If something's causing your colony to be small, sick, weak, and it cannot guard exactly. the space it has, wax moths and hive beetles are going to move in. The hive beetles are already there, but a healthy right. colony keeps them off and, you know, kind of segregated away from the important stuff. And right. then as they're no longer able to do that, well, now they can go through and start laying eggs. They're already in there trying to do it. But the other bees are coming along and cleaning it up and chasing them out and locking them in jail and quartering them in the prison or up in the top of the inner cover, you know, whatever, the back of the, co the colony. A lot of times in a top bar, you'll go through and like everything's awesome. And then you get to like the last three comb where it's in the very That's back they and they're are. dry and you pick it up and every cell is black because there's hive beetles everywhere hiding in the cells but they're only in those last two comb because right. the bees have chased them away and right. they're taking care of the colony just fine so right. that's a whole different scenario and story from from where we started right. on all this but um exactly yeah. but, and I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's been many things that have been said on this episode that are probably potentially triggering <laughs> yeah, i'm sure there are and so, a lot more in store <laughs> Sorry, not sorry. I'm not, I'm not really sure on that one. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I will tell you something. Um, this week, there's been um, um, some exchanges about how natural beekeepers are uh, fanatics and uh, very intolerant. And um, it's very, very stringent and you get censored and blah, blah, blah. But in the grand scheme of things, being on the receiving end of a lot of the hate mail and the, the things that are being said to me, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that more often than not, as people get triggered, like you said, and go on the offensive and are judgmental about those things. And I think it would behoove all of us to kind of be respectful of each other's um beekeeping philosophies because we don't uh -huh. all have the same goals we don't have the same tolerance for um you know stress on the colony or um levels of pests and pathogens like you said with the small hive beetles or with the mites and so in the end i think it's it's kind of as long as we are good stewards of the bees there's no need for ugliness Right. Any size. No. And it, it's also quite astounding how sometimes 
the individuals that are insinuating that these other people are X, Y, Z need to look in the mirror because what they are saying and doing is absolutely not taking into consideration anybody else's viewpoint, but their own. So therefore they are also X, Y, Z. The more acrimonious you are in your statements, the more intolerant you are being to others. Right. right. Because if you weren't, if you weren't, if you were tolerant of others, you would listen you would yes. have a discussion, you would ask questions, you, you would, would pose respect. theories, yes. and it would be a, it might be a a debate or a, a conversation or an exchange, but it would not be, right, but it would not be an argument, it would right. not be a fight. There's a difference between a debate and an argument, right. and, and when you become belligerent and you're belittling and all this other stuff, you're not listening, and right. if you're not listening, then you're just as closed off as you're claiming intolerance. these other yeah. individuals are. <laughs> exactly. That's what, that's the epitome of intolerance, actually. Yeah. Sounds to me like you've been on the Texas Facebook groups again. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I was on the beekeeping basics group. I think it was. <laughs> well, but. you know, you've already been kicked out of one basic beginner beekeeping class. So. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of talk these days about admins censoring comments uh, that, you know, basically are going against their philosophies or their, you know, they just don't want the the discussions to be taking place. This back and forth that we're having, and you and I are totally capable of having a a very respectful grown-up discussion with other people about the pros and cons of all kinds of things, but being censored and, and getting the conversation shut down helps no one. Right. Yeah, you're you are forcing your point of view by not allowing there to be any other types of points of view. Exactly. So, yeah. So That's if it wasn't triggering before, it is now. <laughs> That's right. Let's be more tolerant, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and when I said that you had gotten kicked out of beginner beekeeping things, just just for everybody else out there to clarify. Not that um, one. No, it wasn't a forum. It was an actual class that uh, they got upset because she refused to say that you absolutely must feed your bees. Right. And they did not want her to teach the class and actually show you the options or to know when you should feed your bees and if you should feed your bees. They just wanted her to say you absolutely have to feed your bees and she wouldn't do it. So then they told her that she couldn't come back. (laughs) (laughs) For that class, yes. (laughs) But you know what though? I would have literally, especially knowing the individuals, I would have been exactly the same way. I would have been like mid sentence. Wait, what? No, no, you don't. No, you, you need to. That. You need to look in here. Fly. You need to do this. You need to. <laughs> I cannot let it fly, especially when it's teaching new beekeepers. I mean, that's that's got long term consequences right there. <laughs> yeah, it's it would not it 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 would not be the first time, and and unfortunately, probably will not be the last time that I have ever spoken up or interrupted somebody that was supposed to be either co-presenting or was presenting. And I was just there to observe. I, I did that to Lance once, unfortunately. Um, oh, he's pretty, he's super sharp. He is super sharp, but he's, he popped off one day and he said something that I about fell out of my damn chair. And I was like, um, hang on just a second, Lance. I was like, that's actually not correct. I was like, they can do X, Y, Z. And he goes, well, that's not what it says in the books. And I was like, Lance. Oh, that's funny. I was like, 
out there in the real world, buddy. Like I have watched it happen with my own eyes. They absolutely can do this. You should never tell uh, so them they can't. <laughs> that's something you guys need to remember. The beast, they don't read the books. They don't read those books. That's right. And if you are uber book smart, it yeah. doesn't mean you're B street smart. <laughs> right. You have to have both. You do. You really do. And then you still don't know what the hell the bees are doing. No matter what, they've got <laughs> their own keep plan. They'll you on your toes and they'll still keep you guessing because one day they'll do one way and the other day they'll do another way. That's right. Times change. You got to adapt. They're adapting all the time and we're stuck on, but it says here. <laughs> they're you like know, <laughs> the uh, most experienced and more in tune with the bees beekeeper that I know, Les Crowder, is very humble about it. He says, you know, the bees, they always teach me something new. Yep. So. They change and they evolve, they adapt, and you have to do that right along beside them. You can't stick with it's this way, it's black or white, period. Right. Because to right. them, it's not. It's varying shades of grays and other they colors. Adapt. And yeah, so they go with the flow. <laughs> <laughs> they go with the flow. Sometimes they make mistakes that make no sense. And they lose That's their true. gambles, right? So they're just as fallible as we are. It, well, I, I have said many times over from doing the bee removals that the one thing that always cracks me up is when a colony sets up shop somewhere, like say in the eve of a roof where it gets super hot, mm -hmm. they die, everything melts and falls down yeah. or they abscond because they realize it wasn't good, but it does not prevent a second, third, fourth, fifth, umpteenth colony from moving into that exact same spot every year because right. bees have lived there before. There's wax there. There's pheromones there. And they think, well, bees have lived oh, here before, be so it must be great. And they, right. they miss that one point of, but if it's so great, why aren't they still here? <laughs> or why is it all melted on the ground here? <laughs> right. Why did the comb look like that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow. Um, all right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up before either of us can say anything else that would be a right. sorry, not sorry moment. <laughs> so get it. That's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. By the time the, the general public hear this, it'll be a year removed. <laughs> Rick so. can just say that wasn't us. We were, we were You're like, I don't want you to talk about. Oh yeah. That was a long time ago. You guys are behind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, everybody. Well, thank you for tuning in for another beekeeper chat. Um, if it was triggering, stop and ask yourself why go back, maybe do a little bit of pondering on that. Um, but overall, again, it's, it's really, these are just conversations designed to make you think and right. make you consider new alternatives. We're not telling you how you should or shouldn't do it, or nope. that there is an Never. absolute right way or wrong way. Um, but it is geared towards thinking about being more mindful and exactly. being more considerate of your bees. And as I said multiple times in this episode, if it's not good for you, it probably isn't good for them either. So don't well, fall prey to that easy scapegoat. Yeah, and keep the long, the unintended consequences and the long-term effect of what you do in mind when you make choices for your bees. There you go. Now you got your homework. So get out there and do it. That's right. <laughs> Every time. There you go. So uh, assuming that I am not like snowed in without power, uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next week. <laughs> if not, there's a problem. <laughs> You'll know why. <laughs> All right. Well, until then, everybody, as always, be good. And be mindful. Bye-bye. Bye. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you. And we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees. <laughs> <laughs>